0: It is a a very special pleasure to introduce one of my uh, colleagues here, and not just a colleague, but a colleague in national security law here at the University of Virginia Law School. It's uh, Ashley Deeks, who joined the faculty here in 2012 uh, after two years as an academic fellow at the Columbia Law School. Her primary research and teaching interests are in the areas of international law, national security, intel, and the laws of war. She has written a number of articles on use of force, intersection of national security and international law, and the laws of war. She is a member of the State Department's Advisory Committee on International Law, serves as a senior contributor to the Lawfare blog that many of you uh, access regularly. Before joining Columbia in 2010, she served as the assistant legal advisor for political military affairs in the uh, Department of State's Office of the Legal Advisor, where she worked on issues related to the law of armed conflict, the use of force, conventional weapons and the legal framework for the conflict with Al Qaeda. As you know, the uh, political military uh, assistant legal advisorship is the one that deals with use of force issues, national security issues in L. She also provided advice on intelligence issues. And in previous positions at State, uh, she advised on international law enforcement, extradition, and diplomatic property questions. In 2005, she served as the embassy legal advisor at the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad during Iraq's constitutional negotiations. She was also a 2007-08 Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellow and a visiting fellow in residence at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She received her J.D. with honors from the University of Chicago Law School, where she was order of the COIF and comment editor on the Law Review. After graduation, she clerked for Judge Edward Becker of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. Let me also add that as you uh, look at the uh, uh, younger generation of national security lawyers uh, in the United States, Ashley Deeks is uh, uh, in the absolute top group, uh, recognized as such, I think, widely by the national security law community in the United States. Ashley, thank you for coming.
1: John, thank you for that uh, overly kind introduction. Um, But it is nice, I see a couple of uh, former students, including ones I've had here, but also, Dave Jonas from way back uh, when I did an adjunct class at Georgetown was a student of mine, if you can believe it. So nice to see you again. Good to see you. So I thought what I would do today is um, I'll tell you a little bit about what my goals are for the next uh, hour, hour and 15 minutes, hour and 20 minutes. Um, and then I'm going to show you a couple of short videos uh, and then dive into uh, to the substance of what I want to talk about. But I do want to encourage you, please uh, interrupt, raise your hands. Uh, I will proffer some questions if you have uh, views or answers. I'd very much welcome um, participation from you guys throughout the conversation. Okay, so there are six things that I want to um, talk about today. And let's see. So um, I want to talk about, first, basically, what are drones? and how new are they really as a weapon? How unique are they in the challenges that they present um, in thinking about uh, sort of the prior generation of weapons? The second is, uh, I think, a very important point that sometimes gets uh, missed or subsumed in the debate about drones, and that is the distinction between drones on the one hand and targeted killings on the other, that those are two distinct debates, and I wanna talk about uh, peeling those two apart. Um, And in doing so, then, I want to turn to questions about targeted killing and think about uh, is it lawful, is it unlawful, and what's the correct legal paradigm in which we should be thinking about that question. Then I'll turn back to drones, and I want to think about the potential advantages and disadvantages um, in terms of law of war compliance. Uh, do 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 drones allow us or those who use them Um, to better comply with the rules regulating conflict and how we fight it. I then want to think a little bit about specific aspects of why drone use is generally thought to be somewhat controversial. And I'll I'll try to break apart some of the areas um, where I think controversies have arisen and then we can break down a little bit what the actual controversy is there. This will include things like ethical questions about their use. Um, the fact that the CIA and DOD are both thought to use drones. Is there something s- strange or difficult about having the CIA use them? Um, and think a little bit about the transparency or a lack thereof that we see sometimes associated with drone use. And then at the end, assuming I've still got some time, I want to just think about some of the maybe future questions associated with drones. What's, what's around the corner? Um, to the extent that we can even try to predict that. Okay, so I'm going to start by showing you um, two very short videos um, just to illustrate uh, sort of life back in the World War II days in terms of bombing from the air and life in the 21st century in terms of targeting from the air. So... uh, This first video is of not great quality because it's 50 years old, but let me see if I can. So this is a video from the bombing of Hamburg in
2: 1943.
0: Bombers of the 8th United States Air Force taking off from air drones in England, continue their round-the-clock devastation of war plants in Nazi Germany. (laughs) In broad daylight, mighty squadrons roar across the North Sea. Over Hamburg, Germany's principal seaport
3: and number one war center, tons of bombs rain from the sky.
0: Show the results. Seven square miles of Hamburg's war industries, docks, military installations, flattened and in ruins, water mains, gas and electric plants destroyed. Hamburg as a war suburb, a base for submarines, is virtually wiped off the map. <laughs>
1: okay, so I think you get the idea on that one. Um, so this next video, um is something that the Israeli Defense Force put out, put up on YouTube, um, shortly after it had targeted and killed a Hamas commander in Gaza City. (coughs) That's Mr. Jabari's car. So in that last one, if you notice, uh, the car keeps moving, but there's virtually no damage in the surrounding area um, that the Israelis targeted. Okay, so um, first thing I want to do is think about um, how unique drones are as a weapons platform. And while today we're going to focus on the um, use of lethal force by drones, that is armed drones... Um, We should remember that there are lots of uses for drones, including by the military, that do not entail uh, forcible action. So uh, our U.S. forces and other forces use drones to help see over the next hill. Um, They can hover and gather gather lots of intelligence. Um, They can send that intelligence either to forces in the field or back to the command and control centers. They can track troop movements. They can track people planning IEDs on roads. Um, They were used in a hostage standoff in Algeria a couple of years ago. Um, And in fact, the UN itself uh, has a fleet of drones and has used drones, unarmed drones, in Mali um, to enhance the peacekeeper's situational awareness of what's going on in the, what are the rebel troops doing? Uh, vis-a-vis the peacekeepers, and also to help protect civilians and to time the delivery of humanitarian assistance. They are, we should remember, easily targetable uh, from the ground if, they're, if they were used in a conflict between states. They generally fly quite slowly. They're, I think, about 80 miles an hour. Um, and so almost all of the situations in which we have seen them used... Are, are less conventional conflicts. Maybe those are now becoming the conventional conflicts, but they are not in state-to-state type uh, situations. So I want to suggest to you that the history of weapons is such that the drones are really just the next step, the next iteration of that development. So think about weapons. They started out, we started out with hand-to-hand combat in the time of the cavemen, um, we then move to throwing rocks at each other, We're throwing spears. Then there's a further evolution to things like the crossbow and to guns, gunpowder. And then we have, fast forward to the 20th century, things like Tomahawk missiles, which are launched from ships long distances um, to target places far away. We have high-altitude bombings. So, In each of those cases, we see that there are two goals, right? One is a goal of increased accuracy in targeting the enemy, sort of conserving your resources, being as as direct as possible, and also removing yourself from exposure to the force that the enemy might inflict on you. Um, And I think that's a sort of useful way to think about drones on a continuum. And I think if you speak to many military actors today, many military officers, they will submit to you that that is exactly what um, drones are, is just the next step in this evolution of standoff distances and increased accuracy. And some will point out that... Yes, sir? MTCR... Uh, well, so I'm not actually going to talk much about the MTCR, but there is a, a, a debate going on now about whether, um, uh, I think the U.S. treats them as subject to the MTCR, but you have countries like China and Israel that are not and that are actually um, selling their technologies. I'll talk a little bit about, at the end, the, the sort of expansion of, of sales of drones. Um, I think that some people think that the the remoteness from the actual target, which is what you have with drones, where you have individuals sometimes operating at Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas, sitting in trailers, uh, directing uh, drones that are halfway across the world, um, is not that different from sitting on a ship in the Gulf and launching a guided missile to hit a a, a, a target in Baghdad. We might think that there is something somewhat unique about drones from an operator's perspective. I'll talk about law war compliance in a bit, but it is the case that as with the operators in Nellis, they are very far away from the battlefield in the kinds of conflicts that we're fighting today. And that is even more so than sailors on warships in the Gulf. So these operators can uh, pack up their, their briefcase at the end of the day and go home to their families in Las Vegas. Um, uh, I have a, 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 an interesting video. I'm happy to give you guys the links. I think it's put out by the U.S. government, but it's interviewing individuals who work at Nellis and showing how the, um, how the drone pilot and sensor operators work and live. And you can basically imagine that it's a little bit disconcerting to do that day job and then go home at night. They are, of course, unlikely to feel physical danger as well, although there are reports that um, many drone pilots have actually suffered PTSD as a result of their their work. Okay. So I want to turn to this debate about drones versus the debate about targeted killings. I think that both targeted killings and the use of drones are independently controversial but I think that each exacerbates and clouds the debate about the other um, because of how they've been been used and conflated. I think that there are basically two issues here. One is may the U.S. government target individuals particularly members of Al-Qaeda and associated (coughs) forces away from what we think of as a hot battlefield. So in places like Yemen, Somalia, uh, parts of Pakistan, uh, in contrast to targeting people in Iraq on the battlefield or in Afghanistan on the battlefield. So that's the targeted killing question. And then the second question follows on from that, which is, may the U.S. government, or should the U.S. government, uh, use drones to do that? I think, frankly, the first question is harder and more complicated. And I think that at root, that is often what more people are concerned about than the actual employment of drones. We usually don't even use the phrase targeted killing when we're thinking about targeting people on hot battlefields. Even though we might, be no, we might know who by name we are trying to target... We might be trying to target a a leader of the Taliban in Kandahar, and we know his name, and we are intentionally trying to target him, but we don't think of that as targeted killing. We tend to describe targeted killings as things that are happening outside the hot battlefield. So I want to talk about this question here before we turn back to some drone-specific questions. Okay, so... um, let me just run quickly through some the use ad vellum basics. I assume that many of you are very familiar with this, but um, I'm not positive, so I think it's worth setting it out. Um, there are three bases on which it's lawful to use force in international law. The first is where the Security Council authorizes it pursuant to a Chapter 7 resolution where it authorizes uh, a state or coalition <laughs> of the willing to use all necessary measures to, use, um, to, do a particular, to achieve a particular goal. The second context in which it is not problematic to use force inside another state is where you have the consent of that state. Um, And there are some disputes about who has to give consent, must the consent be public, um, but in general it's thought that consent can overcome the Article 2.4 prohibition on using force against another state. And the third case in which you're allowed to use force is in self-defense. So Article 51 of the charter provides um, that nothing in the charter shall prohibit a state from using force uh, to protect itself against an armed attack. So that's the threshold standard for invoking self-defense. There are a couple of, uh, well, I should say, not just not just a couple, there are many questions uh, about self-defense that remain disputed among states and scholars. Um, One of the questions, which is relevant when we're thinking about targeted killings, is this idea of anticipatory self-defense. So the charter talks about uh, being able to use force and self-defense when an armed attack occurs. Well, what if an armed attack is about to occur and you're very certain of it, but it hasn't actually left the launch pad yet? Can you use force? Many people say, yes, you can use force in anticipatory self-defense. But the threat, the attack, has to be imminent. Um, So that also has been a source of debate because some, including the U.S., have said this idea of imminence, this right before it leaves the launch pad, uh, is a somewhat antiquated concept in a world in which we have non-state actors who are operating in secret, who are trying to do things like get a hold of dirty bombs and so on, that the idea of imminence needs to be expanded a little bit to something like the last clear window before you can thwart an armed attack. Um, a further question that remains debated is um, what happens where the threat of the armed attack, um, its let's say it's non-state actors operating from within another state's territory, So they're the ones that are about to attack you or that have launched an attack against you, but they're operating from within another state's territory. Can you go in and use force against the group that's attacked you? Because you're violating another state's sovereignty by doing it. And so what the U.S. has said, and many other states have actually said over a long period of time, is, well, if the territorial state is unwilling or unable to suppress the threat or to handle the the actors in the aftermath of the attack, yeah. then you have a right to go in. But again, that remains not without controversy. The unwilling or unable justification, I think, is is what, if pressed, the US government would have pointed to as, as justifying going in, for example, to capture or kill bin Laden in Pakistan, um, or to go in and kill Mullah Mansour in Pakistan the idea being that Pakistan was effectively uh, supporting or cooperating or not ejecting these actors from their territory. Okay, so that's the very basic idea of um, the use ad bellum. So what is the legal framework for targeting individuals away from a hot battlefield? How does that fit into the, the use ad bellum? So here, I think we've seen a debate about which of the following three theories applies. One theory is that the, U, look, we'll take the US versus Al-Qaeda as the sort of operative paradigm, that the US is in a non-international armed conflict with Al-Qaeda. Another theory is that the individuals they're targeting are basically each about to pose an imminent threat of an armed attack which is what Ken Anderson has called naked self-defense, and I'll say more about this. And the third is what some say, actually, you're thinking about it all wrong. The correct paradigm is a law enforcement paradigm and a human rights law paradigm, not an armed conflict paradigm. Um, And this has actually been a dispute going on now for for many years, and it remains... uh, Unresolved is a legal question, for sure, although I'll talk about some of the policies that may move those categories closer together. Okay, so what is this, what I'll call NIAC? What is the NIAC approach? So as many of you probably know, um, the uh, the test for whether you're in a NIAC has two prongs. And one is uh, how organized is the group that you're fighting? Basically has to be an organized armed group. It can't be one person. It can't be um, two guys who are on a joyride to sort of throw bottles out of their car. It has to be an organized armed group. And there also has to be a certain level of hostilities. What does that mean? Well, uh, it's something more than a, a riot or sporadic violence. Um, But there's this open question, then. Um, The United States has actually referred to the possibility of both the first and second theories being the operative theories for targeted killings. But the question about the, the NIAC theory is, can you actually accumulate hostilities that are occurring in a variety of different states to get you up to the threshold of a NIAC? What many people say traditionally, NIACs were thinking about civil war type activities, and so you're accumulating hostilities that are taking place within a single territory. But the US says, well, why should that be the case? It's not our fault that the group is operating from any of a number of territories. So we're asking a question about what is the level of hostilities around the world posed by al-Qaeda? So they're accumulating hostilities. Um, and other actors, especially those that adopt the third theory, say you have to ask whether the level of hostilities within a particular state, so within Yemen, by al-Qaeda against the United States, that's the test you need to use to determine if you can use military force in a sort of use of force armed conflict paradigm. So that fight continues because, frankly, the treaty texts, um, and even the state practice in the past 50 years doesn't really clarify kind of what the what the right answer is here. Okay, so that's the NIAC approach. Any questions about NIAC? Okay, yes, sir. Just
4: an observation or question. Yeah. The last point, um, the, the open question as to whether uh, you can aggregate or it has to be within one state, mm-hmm. isn't it? Is that really a function of more traditional or conventional engagement, as opposed to the very nature of asymmetric threats? So whether it's trans-border or transnational, it, it's it hasn't yet caught up with the current quote threat. Is that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly what the U.S. is saying. There's nothing embedded in the treaties that clearly says, you know, you can only have a non-international armed conflict within a single border. Um, there's always. For a long time, there's been slippage of of traditional civil wars across borders, but usually just sort of just into the next state. And what the U.S. is saying is, look, this is a different paradigm. This is al-Qaeda operating from Thailand. This is right post-9-11. They're in Thailand. They're in the UAE. They're in um, the Gambia. And that's not of our doing. That's the fact that they have decided to sort of spread themselves out. And we need to interpret the rules in a way that allow uh, sort of NIAC to capture this. Um, I think that's exactly right, that it's a function of sort of change. And there haven't been that many examples historically that look like transnational threats by non-state actors. So there's not a great kind of precedent for the U.S. to point to. Yes, sir?
0: um, Doesn't the uh, battlefield include
4: also the territory of the uh, state country which is part of the conflict? For instance, it could be also include uh, England, which would allow uh, England to to, uh, to target someone
1: in England, and it wouldn't be a war crime under uh, neither the Geneva Convention or the um, uh, ICC uh, Statute. Yeah. So, uh, so an aggressive interpretation, if the U.S. were to kind of or the U.K. were to take a very aggressive interpretation, it would say not only can we target members of al-Qaeda in Somalia who are plotting against us, but if there is a cell in London, then we could use military force to target that. States have not taken that approach to date. Um, You know, the U.S. toyed a little bit with this idea of holding American citizens as enemy combatants inside the U.S., And that was very controversial and a couple of cases went up almost to the Supreme Court and the U.S. mooted those cases out by putting the individuals into a criminal process. Because I think they were concerned that there was going to be precedent from the Supreme Court that said you cannot hold these individuals. And this is detention, right, not targeting a (laughs) slightly more modest context. They were worried the Supreme Court was going to say no. And I can guarantee you that it would be a cold day in hell before the Brits use a drone strike against somebody in, in London, right? That would be, that's that's seen as a bridge too far. Well, you might say, well, that's not really fair. They're treating people inside the UK differently from outside the UK, but that's where we are. But
4: well, the thing is, uh, under law enforcement, you can't
2: do this, obviously, but under uh law of war, you can.
1: That's right. Well, so I'll we'll talk a little bit about what the standards are for law enforcement, and I think I want to point out the way in which perhaps the, that legal paradigm and the armed force policy paradigm are coming together a little bit. I'll tell you what I mean in a sec. Okay, so um, so what's the naked self-defense approach? It sounds brisquet. Um, so here's, <laughs> here's what, um, what Ken Anderson means when he says this, and I think it's just sort of a useful paradigm. It's basically that um, single individuals... Can be plotting overseas to basically maybe they're the the mastermind behind a plot to they're going to put a bomb on a U.S. aircraft, commercial aircraft. Um, they're posing a th- imminent a threat of an armed attack, an imminent threat of an armed attack that triggers your right of anticipatory self-defense. But note here that it creates a higher standard than the than the non-international armed conflict paradigm. Where in NIAC, basically all you need is for somebody to be a member of Al-Qaeda. That could include a foot soldier. I think in the naked self-defense paradigm, um, you need somebody who himself poses an imminent threat of an armed attack. And so that's often going to be somebody who's potentially uh, the senior member of the, of the armed group or maybe the individual who's kind of got the bomb strapped on walking towards the aircraft. But it is, it's a narrower group. And the use of force, the force you're using against them, has to be fed through the traditional self-defense paradigm, which requires you to assess, first, whether force is necessary. And second, the level of force that you can use has to be proportional to the threat. And so that might mean just dis- disabling or capturing a single the single individual who's posing this threat of an armed attack. And in both cases, I should note, in both the the NIAC and naked self-defense paradigms, I think sovereignty remains relevant. So after you do these these inquiries, are we in a NIAC, is this naked self-defense, you still have to worry about the sovereignty of the state in which you're thinking about conducting a military operation. So again, you have to ask, number one, do we have the consent of the state in which we're going to use force, or is that state unwilling or unable? Because I think there is still this sort of underlying preference for managing this in a law enforcement paradigm if it's possible to do so. Okay. So if you're Human Rights Watch, you say, this is not a correct interpretation of the law. Armed conflict is not about taking out single individuals it's not about fighting these global war on terror. If you have an actor doing something in Somalia, uh, you've got you know, a bunch of people running around with guns, um, you should put them, this is a law enforcement paradigm and you should help the Somalis arrest these individuals, prosecute them, and put them in jail. For, so they would say, look, if somebody is actually standing outside the embassy with a gun to a marine security guard's head, then you could actually use force against him, right? We could do that in downtown LA if, if a, uh, someone's taken someone hostage, right? We have snipers who kill hostage takers. But that's a law enforcement paradigm. Human rights law says no arbitrary killing. But it basically accepts this carve out for things like where it's a law enforcement activity, force is the last resort, and you can't you can't take out the, the hostage taker and seven other hostages, right? They're, that's collateral damage that's not really accepted in a law enforcement paradigm. Um, but it says the U.S. government is basically sort of cheating by trying to accumulate these hostilities around the world. Um, and I should note just, if, if, it's, if they're right that, the, that international human rights law applies, then the relevant treaty is the ICCPR. So this idea of no arbitrary deprivation of life comes from the ICCPR. Okay, so we're not quite sure where we are in all of these three, although the U.S. is, um, again, not on board with the third, but on board with the first two, depending on the situation. and there are a couple reasons it's not on board with law enforcement. One is it says that's an insufficient way to deal with this threat. These, th- there's, these guys are too armed, they're too sophisticated. Often it's in a country that doesn't have a law enforcement capability, um, and we need to protect ourselves. This is more, uh, more appropriately thought of outside this human rights paradigm. And further, the US would say, by the way, the ICCPR doesn't apply extraterritorially which is not something our our European and NATO allies necessarily agree with, but it is a position pretty long held. Um, And furthermore, this is a little bit circular, but because we're in an armed conflict, um, lex specialis dictates that it's the rules of armed conflict that regulate how we act, not the rules of human rights law, which were not drafted for this context. Okay, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about yet another question, but there is this lurking question about who precisely is targetable if you're engaging in a targeted killing, right? In the, in the naked self-defense paradigm, it's clearer because the person has to pose an imminent threat of an armed attack. But in the NIAC context, there are still fights about who counts as basically a part of this armed group. Who's a member of al-Qaeda? Who's a member of the associated forces of al-Qaeda? What if somebody is a member of Al-Shabaab but does a little bit of work for Al-Qaeda? Is that somebody targetable and so on? So those are questions, uh, I think, for another lecture, but they are, um, they remain live. And then also questions about what level of confidence you need to have that the person in your sites is the person you think it is. Okay. Um, and yet another... Controversy that comes up uh, sort of within this category of questions has to do with signature strikes. So this is where U.S. government targeters, for example, deem certain groups and certain behavior as clearly indicative of military activity, such that they are subject to being targeted. So if you see eight military-age males assembling in a house of a known al-Qaeda recruiter you might conduct a signature strike against that house. Those have been controversial um, in part because uh, it relies so heavily on uh, imperfect intelligence, as does all of this, but in particular signature strikes, you tend to know somewhat less about the people you're targeting. We know we got it wrong with a lot of people that the U.S. government decided to detain and send to Guantanamo, hundreds of people, um, were not the people we thought they were and we and the Bush administration pretty quickly released them, sent them home you don't get a second chance when you've in, undertaken a targeted killing or a, a signature strike on a, on a house so this lower level of certainty about who precisely you're targeting in signature strikes has made some uncomfortable ok so that's the legal framework with a lot of question marks But I want to say something also about the policy framework for targeted killings that the U.S. government has adopted. So I think many of these critiques and questions that I've just raised about the legal framework, sort of persistent debates, even among U.S. uh, allies in NATO, and a worry about precedent, has spurred the White House or did spur the White House back in about 2013 to issue a policy on targeted killings away from areas of active hostilities. And that policy is narrower than some of the legal concepts that I just articulated in the NIAC or naked self-defense world. So I put on the screen a couple of the key points from the 2013 policy to help illustrate how it goes beyond what the law of war requires of a state fighting an armed conflict. So for example, it's, it's long been the US view that the laws of war don't require you to capture somebody uh, over killing them. That is, you have a choice but you're not required to capture them if you can. You could choose to kill them if they're an enemy armed force. The policy says the preference is for capture. And it articulates why. It says very often there's useful intelligence to be gained if you detain the person. Um, And so our preference is gonna be to capture where possible. And you can imagine lots of things that would preclude capture, right? post-state says, no way are you coming in with a bunch of boots on the ground, um, or you're worried that it will endanger civilians on the ground, or you uh, sort of excessively endanger your own forces, um, but the preference is nevertheless there. The policy also says it requires near certainty, it requires the U.S. Um, targeters to have near certainty that non-combatants will not be injured or killed. That is not a requirement of the laws of war. The laws of war, as I'll talk about, require you to to act in a use in bellow proportionality, uh, apply that to your strike, but it does not mandate that there be no collateral damage. And yet this policy does require that. The law of war... Yes, sir? Mr. Smith? (coughs)
2: Is it the U.S. intelligence community's definition? of the military generally has bought is essentially ninety percent probability, or is there another definition associated with it?
1: So we don't know. Um, and one of the one of the reactions to the policy is, well, this is great, but there are a, a number of terms in here that are somewhat malleable, and you haven't told us how you're going to interpret them. So it's a good question. I don't know. Whether it tracks uh, a 90% standard, is it a 95% standard, we, we don't know. Um, I should add, there is a, there is a, a more detailed uh, policy hidden behind a, a curtain still. It's still classified. And there have been noises from the White House that they are going to try to declassify part of that to give more detail, but we have not yet seen it. Okay, so I was also going to note that um, the policy says you can only use force against persons who pose a continuing imminent threat. So that sounds a little bit like our naked self-defense idea, right? Um, that is not required in an armed conflict where you can kill a soldier, if you can kill an enemy combatant who's on vacation uh, somewhere, right? If he, he's not standing there with a gun about to... Um, To shoot you the law of war does not require continuing imminent threat but this goes back to Mr. Smith's point what is continuing imminent threat good question Um, we have an idea of what imminence means from this uh, 1836 Caroline case where imminence really meant imminent but there's been a lot of conversation in NATO about again whether that's the right construct there and so you might assume well that that Request for flexibility by the US government in the kind of generic use ad bellum area might also float into this as well, but we don't know. We don't know. The policy is also, um, it talks some about process. It talks about the requirement that decisions on targeted killings go um, up to senior senior officials, and and some think that it's uh, depending on the Level of um, the level of the target might go up to the president but it definitely goes up um, a high way. Why? To signal that the US government realizes this is a, a controversial thing and it needs to be really careful. Again, this goes back to precedent. I think the government is trying to cabin the precedent that it is setting without rejecting the need for what it's doing. Um, going back to your London question I um, there is an additional uh, discussion of what happens when the target is an American citizen. And there, there are even additional protections uh, built in to that as well. The White House says it's going to give regular updates to Congress about what it's doing. So it may be that it provides numbers of, of, um, of strikes uh, to the relevant committees. And as I mentioned, the details of the underlying standards and procedures remain remain classified, but you should keep an eye out for whether they are released sometime before the administration uh, ends. Okay, so I, I raise all this basically to signal that I think a lot of the concern about drones actually ends up being discomfort with targeted killings. Not all of it, but some of it. Now I want to talk about... Um, let's go back to... Um, to uh, drones and law of war compliance. So the U.S. government view is that drones clearly facilitate law of war compliance. And by this I mean the rules that regulate how you fight armed conflicts. Harold Coe made this point right when he came into office in uh, 2010 at a speech he gave at the American Society of International Law. And John Brennan and others have talked about this subsequently. So the first principle that the U.S. and I think others think that drones facilitate is the rule of distinction. So distinction, as you guys may have already heard from other speakers, is both a treaty and a customary rule thought generally to apply both in international and non-international armed conflicts that requires a state uh, to distinguish between military objectives on the one hand and civilian objects and civilians on the other and only target the former, So how do drones help distinction? Well, it increases your confidence that you are watching and about to target a military objective. When you can hover over that target, you have uh, pretty high-resolution lenses. You can see who's coming and going. You can see markings on buildings or markings on cars (coughs) and so on. So because you can spend days watching a target, rather than hours or minutes, uh, it might increase the the satisfaction of the, the rule of distinction. A second rule that's also helped by drones is proportionality. So again, here the treaty and customary rule is that anticipated collateral damage cannot be excessive in proportion to the anticipated military advantage. So how do drones help that? Well, again, if you have better intelligence about who's inside a particular location or who's inside a car, um, you're more likely to know whether there are civilians inside the car. Um, uh, Are there children around? What are the patterns of life? Is there a point in time at which uh, the wife and three children leave to go to school or the grocery store? You can figure that out and thus reduce collateral uh, damage from strikes. It is also possible, I think, that those who are operating these systems, and again, often these are people quite removed from the battlefield, might be Nellis, might be other places, they might be less affected by the heat of battle, and so they might have uh, sort, of less, uh, uh, sort of less inclination, or they might be able to um, reduce the number of errors they might otherwise make. And I think whatever you think about the Israel-Hamas conflict, the video that I showed you earlier shows that it is possible for, uh, f- to use drones to wait until um, there are not civilians nearby to conduct the strike and thereby minimize collateral damage. Yes, sir? I was just going to
4: add to your point about when they're removed from the conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a previous life, when I was in the Army um, downrange, my commander made a distinct decision to, to for me not to have a seat in the operations center where you could see everything, because there is a distinct issue of when you are sitting there watching what's happening, everyone kind of gets ramped up, and it's much easier to buy into what folks want to do, right. and you start to dis, you start to disengage from what should we do legally to okay, now my emotions are playing in. So what I would do is I would come in and then start asking the necessary questions and go through uh, the process that way. And just to be
1: clear, you were serving as a JAG? Yes. Yeah, okay. And
4: so it was much easier to uh, be more factual and, and then rely on the policies and the laws and the regulations in order to make those... And you could even go in... I remember one one time asking specifically because there were... Uh, Non-combatants in a certain area, we would ask, you know, what's the trajectory of the of the missile that's going to hit this? You know, how can we contain it to this one room or this one building and things mm-hmm. like that? Mm-hmm. Whereas when you watch things happen and unfold, it's much harder to do that.
1: Right. That's very very interesting. So thank you for that, uh, You should be up here teaching this Saturday. <laughs> um, so. Uh, Anyway, so um, in addition to uh, proportionality, I think there's also this idea of precautions. Um, This is contained in additional protocol, one to which the U.S. isn't a party, but I think it thinks of it as uh, either custom or inappropriate rule, which is that states have to take feasible precautions uh, before attack to try to avoid or minimize civilian casualties and damage to civilian objects. So again, drones offer a benefit here because it allows you to wait until people leave at 9 o'clock and uh, uh, the the civilians to leave at 9. It's also easier to call off a drone strike at the last minute than it is to call off a tomahawk missile at the last minute. Um, and drones tend to allow the use of quite precise ordnance, which again limits the blast radius of some of these strikes. But note also what's happening here is that there is... An increased expectation um, that these strikes will be incredibly precise and that they won't produce collateral damage, um, especially some people say, because look, the U.S. is not uh, putting its forces in harm's way, um, so it should spend more time loitering and it should be more careful um, because you're not asking a soldier to kind of go in and do a night raid. Whether that's fair or not, we can we can talk about. Um, And I would still note that even though people think, well, drones mean you have nobody kind of on the battlefield at stake, I'm not sure that's entirely right. I think it's often you have either your own forces, maybe your special operations forces, or um, local forces who are partnering with you on the ground to help you gather intelligence. So it's not like there are no uh, sort of um, boots on the ground that you are uh, recruited assets that um, you need to worry about. And on the other hand, your intelligence, you know, is not always perfect, and so we shouldn't be surprised where there are mistakes made. Um, there are mistakes made in armed conflict all over the place. It's just a question of how um, how diligent you are, um, but no, it's not gonna be perfect. Okay, so now, uh, any questions on that before we t- talk about some specific drone controversies? Okay. All right, so, I think there are a couple of uh, concerns about drones that I want to talk about. One is that it, uh, it basically skews judgments related to the use ad bellum, to the resort to force in the first instance. This is a significant complaint about drones, <clears throat> that they facilitate a state's resort to force. Why? Well, th- the fact that you have drones might potentially alter a state's incentives not just the state with the drones, but also the state um, on which the drone strikes might occur. So for instance, it might make it easier for a host state to consent to you using a drone in their airspace than it would for them to agree to have 500, 1,000 ground troops in their territory. It's easier for Pakistan, for example, again, this is speculation because we don't know whether Pakistan's consented or not but it would be e- presumably easier for Pakistan to quietly consent to the U.S. conducting a number of targeted strikes than it would be to say, sure, come on in, send 10,000 troops to help control the Fatah. Right? Drones also may, may reduce the domestic pressure that leaders feel um, to resort to force. Why? Because you have fewer troops at risk. Um, And war might be somewhat less costly as a result because you're less worried about force protection. Third, some say, well, actually, when you're killing the enemy from afar like this, it feels less tangible to senior decision makers. When the bodies aren't coming home uh, on aircraft, then maybe it, it just kind of makes the glide path to armed conflict easier. So I should say, I haven't seen significant evidence of, the, of states possessing drones, and that's not just the United States, as I'll talk about in a sec, altering their use ad vellum assessment simply because they have armed drones. Um, I haven't done a careful, I don't know how you do an empirical analysis of this, but um, I'm not aware of egregious examples where that's occurred, but it is an issue that people have put on the table. Okay, how about the fact of CIA operations? Again, the CIA has not uh, straightforwardly said, I think, that they are engaged in drone activities, but it is often thought that it is a a sort of open secret that they are. And some say, well, that's a problem. Well, first of all, we should ask, why might it be the case that it's the CIA conducting some of these strikes rather than DOD? Why not just have DOD do it all? They're they're in the business of um, warfighting, so one, que- one thought might be, well, it depends who has the best relationship with the host state. So it could be that, let's say, let's take Yemen. Yemen has an intelligence service that is close to the CIA, and maybe the military relationships are less good. So Yemen might say, well, we consent to drone strikes, but only if the CIA does. them. So that could be one reason. Um, there's some idea that CIA strikes are more deniable than DOD strikes. Uh, Why? Well, they're ostensibly done as a covert action, so they are deniable by the U.S., but it's not like the military runs around acknowledging every strike that it does. They can act in in clandestine ways as well. So that doesn't necessarily hold up to um, to, to sort of the the analysis of intelligence law. And it might also be sometimes who has the assets closest to the issue at hand. Note that the CIA, if it's conducting these strikes, still has to comply with the laws of war. It's not like there's a get-out-of-jail-free or a free pass to not comply with IHL. The CIA operators would not be uh, generally construed as lawful enemy combatants. They're not wearing uniforms, presumably. They're not part of the U.S. armed forces. But it's not a war crime per se, to target uh, an enemy, com- a lawful uh, an, a, a, a lawful target, that's not a war crime. It does mean that the CIA officer engaged in the pull- pulling the trigger on the drone strike could be prosecuted domestically in, say, Yemen. Um, question mark <laughs> for domestic law violations of, of Yemeni law, but I think that is. Uh, quite unlikely as a practical matter. And they would. The CIA officer would be targetable for such time as he is taking direct part in hostilities, but again, seems unlikely in these kind of conflicts that that will actually come up. And he would not be entitled to POW status if he were captured by an enemy. So, in general, should the fact that the CIA might be doing this affect what we think about the U.S. using drones? Well, maybe there's a concern that the CIA didn't necessarily know the laws of war as well as the military does. Military lawyers and, and, um, and officers are basically you know, raised on the laws of war, not so for the CIA, especially in the early days post 9-11. Now though, to the extent they have been engaged in these strikes for years, one would hope that the uh, familiarity with the laws of war and how to apply it are, um, are significant. And frankly, from what I understand, Based on what I've read, the CIA and military are often side-by-side on this, so there's not a big, this is your shop, this is my shop. It's much closer than that. Okay. So how about the transparency angle here? The U.S. government has generally not been hugely transparent about who's using what drones where. right? So as a result, there's limited ability to know what the rules of engagement are except for we have the 2013 policy, but we're not quite sure kind of how it gets implemented. We don't have a claim system for people who are inadvertently harmed by drone strikes, but whereas we did in a place like Iraq, military um, commanders were given the authority to pay out, make ex gratia or salacia payments when someone's car was injured or somebody's child was hurt. Um, We don't have the same thing in the drone context because it's a much more secretive program. And that also has meant that it's harder to provide significant public and media oversight. And that's coupled, though, with something the U.S. has done periodically, which is to leak strategically about the drone program. So someone within the government told the New York Times reporter Charlie Savage that there was an OLC opinion related to the targeting of Anwar al-Awlaki. Why? Because they wanted to show that it was a carefully considered uh, project and a targeting. And yet the government still refused to acknowledge that it had formally targeted him for a long time. They still refused to acknowledge the drone program in Pakistan, although many people think, again, that it's an open secret. Um, Brennan does uh, eventually I think it's in 2013 or late 2012 does acknowledge the US uses drone strikes against Al Qaeda and in his speech he reflects the idea that binding the US government to rules of conduct is a strategic advantage not a hindrance why? Well I think both he and Harold Koh have said we're worried about precedent right so Um, we know that there are a lot of countries coming online with the sort of close capacities to what we have. And the rules we set for ourselves, we can turn to other states and say, we expect you to comply with those same rules using the same level of care, the same level of procedures going up to your senior leadership, uh, and so on. Um, If we're totally silent about it, the government realizes, it's it's, it's easier to extrapolate sort of bad precedent from what we're doing if we haven't explained what the theories are. So, you know, we should ask ourselves, should the U.S. government be even more forthcoming than it has been um, about what it's doing? And what would some of the downsides be, right? Transparency is not all an upside, uh, including in, in military and intelligence operations. I think one big downside about being more transparent is Uh, It relates to the consent of the states in which you're conducting these strikes, right? So a state might consent, but do it secretly and say, I cannot have my consent be made public. I would rather stand up and be able to criticize you for what you're doing while secretly clearing my airspace for your drones um, than openly acknowledge that I've consented. We might say, in a democracy, that's terrible. You You should own the consent that you're giving to other states and you should talk to your people about it publicly. But a lot of states we're dealing with, that's not the the sort of political situation there. What are some other alternatives? Well, we could turn over operations more to the the host states to engage either in their sort of their own non-international armed conflict with these groups um, or law enforcement. But here I think it's hard to find capable partners in Yemen and Pakistan and Somalia even if they're trying and we're trying to train them. It's not um, its not a perfect solution. Another way to be transparent is you could post more videos of strikes like the Israelis did, um, but we should ask which way that cuts. I think some people were sort of shocked that the Israelis put that up, either because they thought, wow, that's really transparent, or you're kind of celebrating the death of somebody. Um, so I don't know. I'd be curious about your reactions as to whether the U.S. should post more videos of its strikes.
3: That's it. Part of the difference is that with Israel, um, you know, the Democratic government, they can post that stuff online without worrying that their general public is going to be like, oh, my God, I can't believe you did this. Um, Whereas, you know, with us, the problem is that there's always going to be such a detachment from the threats in the world amongst the American public uh, that it actually jeopardizes our ability to prosecute those threats uh, where it's not the same. In
1: do you think there's more than we could be doing to to clarify to the public what the threat is, without without freaking them out? Right, for uh, Israelis know what the threat is. Right?
3: I, I mean, I do think that that is an aspect that the government needs to work on more. Um, but the uh, you know, because even you know, you have things like Orlando happen every couple months or so. And, uh, you know, the public quickly forgets, the, the public views it as like, oh, that's, you know, one city in this vast country mm-hmm. type of thing, mm-hmm. um, you know, whereas every Israeli knows their entire life that they have a continuous threat to right. the survival of their nation, right. uh, surrounding their borders. Right. Um, and, and the hard thing for us is that the, the threat of, you know, ISIL, Al-Qaeda, et cetera, that we're going after, it's... Not the same degree of threat to the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, similar to how President Obama said, that, "You know, ISIL is not an existential threat to the United States. Mm-hmm. It's a national security threat." Mm-hmm. But you know, you're not going to win over, uh, for lack of a better phrase, pacifist-leaning Americans mm-hmm. um, to to the cause of going after them if you're not telling them like the actual survival of the state and is yeah. at stake. Here.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I guess it does raise the question about, like, how much support is there for drone strikes? I would tend to think it's quite high, right? If you look at some of the numbers about should we be using uh, sort of more force to keep the threat overseas, my guess is you're right, that there is some group, maybe, I don't know, 20%, 30% that would say, like, this is all a problem and we shouldn't be posting it online, and 60 or 70% would say, like, good, this is what we should be doing.
3: But I also think that... um, Right, like yep. Americans support the drone strikes. I, I agree yeah. that the majority of Americans support the drone strikes. That's because they don't see the dead bodies. Yeah. Um, at the moment, you yeah. give them the visual of the dead bodies. Right now, they're happy to just be detached of like I don't know them, so they're dead, whatever. You know, um, just like I mean, most Americans stand by idly while people are gunned down in the streets in the South Side of Chicago without caring because they don't know them right. and they don't see the actual visual aspects of
1: it. Right. Right. It's true. Um, yeah, so I d- it's an interesting distinction between Israel and, and us on this. Um, we, c- The U.S. government could say more about who it thinks is lawfully targetable. So they've said stuff at a broad level, but we don't know kind of more specifically uh, the types of people we deem part of al-Qaeda or associated forces or part of the Taliban. Um the U.S. government has said, well, being more specific will actually allow individuals to tailor their behavior, to kind of move themselves outside the definition. I guess my reaction to that is then good, right? Then they're changing their behavior to render themselves non-targetable. I suppose uh, there might be some people who continue to do bad stuff that doesn't fit quite within the legal definition, but um, that's been, uh, I don't know, on the table for a while. And you could say more after the fact about who you targeted and who got killed. Um, putting aside the, the video, you could say um, could say more. Now, you need to protect your sources and methods, for sure, um, and that might limit your ability to talk about kind of source of the intelligence. But this leads into, I think, a big um, question in the transparency bucket, which has to do with civilian casualties. So there are very big disputes about uh, how many individuals, civilians have been killed inadvertently in these strikes. And there are very different numbers if you look at what the U.S. government says, what Small Wars Journal says, what the Center for New American Security says. They all have different um, numbers. At some point uh, after, after May of 2010, John Brennan said, look, we have killed 600 militants using uh, armed drones and not a single civilian. Right? That can't be true. Um, Unless you're counting basically all military aged males as combatants, which the US government says in its 2013 policy it doesn't do. So the best estimate I could find, a sort of average of all these numbers, is like 5 to 20% of the people killed in these strikes are civilians. But note also that the Taliban have real incentives to overclaim the number of civilian deaths, that is a recruiting tool for them. Um, I think it's very hard for anybody to get really, really accurate numbers. And from what I understand, the U.S. actually uses drones to kind of hover over after the fact, uh, uh, where a strike area, to loiter over funerals and so on to try to figure out and to monitor uh, communications to hear what people are saying about who was killed. Um, in March of 2016, the White House, uh, through Lisa Monaco, who's the, um, the domestic uh, Homeland Security person in the White House, promised to release the number of people killed in drone strikes since Obama took office. And that would break it down into both combatant and non combatant categories. I would guess that it would not necessarily break it down by year, although it might. I think it's unlikely that it would break it down by country for the reasons of sort of secret consent that I've mentioned. And I think it's also unlikely that it would break it down by agency, given that the the role of the CIA remains ambiguous here. But there has not been this release yet. Um, I would hope that it would come before the end of the Obama administration. I'm sure the process of counting and the process of declassifying is very complicated. Okay, but in theory, you might think drones actually do increase accountability in one area, and that is internal to the government, right? So everything's on tape. Uh, It's easy to track what happened. It's easy to track who decided what, uh, or at least easier, in contrast to being deep in a jungle with a platoon of, of soldiers and no video cameras, so, again, the stuff on the tapes is generally not made public, but it's certainly within the government uh, and within the military and, and CIA in particular, I think, helps for internal executive accountability. How am I doing that time? Okay. So um, no skin in the game. Yeah, sir. Before we move on, yeah. just to jump back the CIA, an interesting point is we, actually,
4: the ADI department, our international law department that we're a part of, we once a year go and work with. A big room of them, CIA personnel, a lot of analysts, whatever. But uh, it's very interactive; they're very engaged. They ask a lot of questions. We teach the law of war, so there's. Yeah. Yes, I don't think they have as robust of uh, training in it yep. like we do as lieutenants, but uh, that there is a healthy relationship, and there's there's some of that.
1: Yep, and I assume that that has sort of increased and solidified over time. That might not have been in place in 2001, yeah, but I'm now just, it's. I don't have much context on that. Yeah, it's, it's a good. It's useful. Right yeah, it goes back Thank to you. That's so great. Yep. Yes, sir.
2: The um, why this morning, the Washington Post is carrying a story on CIA and military drone operations in Pakistan and, and Yemen. And the last couple months, CIA has started handing over the trigger to military, so that they're not actually pulling mm-hmm. the trigger. At, a, at any sort of rate like it was, mm-hmm. I so Yeah, that, interesting. That's a good change as a former CIA officer to, to be happy Handing it back. to get us out of their
1: military. Yeah. There had been some interest, including by John Brennan, I think, to do that, and there was some pushback in the Senate, right? The Sissy and, and Hipsy said, well, I don't know. I think because they were worried they'd lose access to knowing what was going on, right? It's committee jurisdiction. Okay, so I'm going to speed up a little bit. So skin in the game. Um, you sometimes hear, well, it's sort of an unfair fight, right? You have a country that's extremely technologically sophisticated and they can fight in this sterile way. They're not at risk. There's no skin in the game. That just seems fundamentally problematic. Um, there is, of course, n- nothing in the law of war that requires you to be present on the battlefield. Um There are rules that require you, for example, to make sure that your weapons aren't indiscriminate or that, um, you know, of course, you have to follow things like proportionality and distinction, but there is not a sort of you-must-be-present rule. (coughs) Some people said, well, this just isn't honorable combat. So, um, Jamie, I asked the class this, sort of what their reaction was to this, and uh, they were overwhelmingly nonplussed by the argument. I think there were one or two that thought maybe there was something there, but... They said, look, this is just an advantage that higher tech states have, right? Do we really want to force people to stand exposed on the battlefield where they don't have to, Is that your recollection of where we came at? Yeah. Okay. Um, How about strategic costs? So the argument is that by using drones, we are multiplying enemies, especially in places like Pakistan. You had a family member killed by a drone— you're more likely to take up arms, the argument goes, against the U.S. or to support individuals and groups that are fighting the U.S. I'm sort of puzzled that we don't actually have more conclusive evidence one way or the other on this. You see studies periodically saying, yes, of course that's right. You're just um, pushing people to the enemy side. And then you sometimes see competing reports that say, no, actually, if you interview people in, in the FATA, they say the drones are generally hitting the right people and good on you. So um, I don't quite know why there hasn't been a kind of more comprehensive maybe meta-study about this. You might also ask, well, aren't drones just incidental in this argument, right? You have similar effects in Iraq where you have our troops going in and doing night raids that could be extremely unpopular and, and create resistance from um, the the local population. And that's not use of drones. That's just maybe part of fighting the kind of groups we're fighting. There's also this idea, uh, sort of a separate but related effect, that drones actually cause significant anxiety in the people living under them. right? So they fly high, but they make a noise that you can detect, and it creates this real anxiety of like, when is it going to hit, what's it going to strike. Um, again, the law of war doesn't prohibit that if it's incidental to your military operations, you aren't allowed to take an, uh, an act, the primary purpose of which is to spread terror, but that's not what the drone hum is doing. It's, it's geared towards real military operations. Okay, and then finally, how about this idea of bargaining chip strikes? So some people say, look, the U.S. is basically kind of doing dirty work in other states' armed conflicts. So there was a New York Times article a while back that was suggesting that the U.S., uses drones in some case at the behest of the territorial state, the state that's consenting, not to target our enemies, but to target their enemies. And these are called bargaining chip strikes. So is that necessarily a bad thing? It it, it could potentially open the US up to claims that it's aiding and abetting war crimes if the host state is saying you should target my political enemies Right, that wouldn't be permissible. Um, it might actually impose on the U.S. some obligation to do a little bit of digging to figure out who they're being asked to target. Um, but, uh, but that's a, a final critique. Okay, so I want to quickly show uh, one more video as we're thinking about kind of the future of drones. Where's my...
4: We developed a nano quadrotor capable of agile flight. You guys see this? Cool. Mm-hmm. Multiple vehicles can fly as a formation. The method to transition between formations in 3D. The team can also navigate in environments with obstacles.
1: Makes you want one of those, doesn't it? <laughs> Apparently, they're illegal in Charlottesville. <laughs> okay. Um, so, I guess I have three thoughts about the future of drones. And This video isn't even—it's a couple years old. I think that they're getting even smaller and even uh, more nimble. But um, let's envision a future in which we have lots and lots of quadrotor drones with or without lethal capacity, right? These are too small to carry uh, lethal yet, but they're increasing battery power, they're increasing camera power, they might be increasing strength of what they can carry. Who benefits in a world in which we have these micro drones? Is it the US? Is it other states? Mark, any thoughts? Well, I mean, if, if
4: you push it out over the horizon, disproportionate
1: benefit would go to the asymmetric threat yeah right i agree um very easy for non-state actors to use these right hezbollah has actually flown some regular sized drones over israel i think it would be very easy for put aside the lethality states that are uh sort of not particularly t- uh, militarily sophisticated buy some of these. It's easy to send them across the border, go spy on your neighbors. All of a sudden you've got, um, you know, lots of covert action possibilities. Um, They are increasingly going to get undetectable. Um, They have a limited range at this point, but that's only a matter of time before that changes. I should refer you, by the way, there's a good article by Gabby Bloom, who's up at Harvard, um, who did a a, like a sort of 17-page kind of policy piece uh, where she starts out the piece by envisioning she's in a shower and she sees a spider. And she doesn't know whether the spider is a lethal robot sent to shoot poison into her leg and kill her, whether it's uh, got a miniature camera and it's been sent by a guy down the street to sort of film her in the shower, or if it's just a regular spider. Um, And she sort of plays out a world in which the threats become increasingly diffuse and increasingly small and increasingly individualized. So I, I commend the article to you. Um, I do think you can see Yes, yeah, sir
4: just a, a, a point you know already we see uh, international criminal organizations flying drones with uh, narcotics across our borders and those kinds of activities have yeah. already started yeah. but the and, and of course this the technology just keeps getting ubiquitous but the right. real another big issue you didn't touch on I want to address is the um, self-autonomous, Issue yeah. uh, now. We've always yeah. had a policy in the Department of Defense that yeah. there would always be a man in the loop. Yeah. That's changed now. Evidently, I've been reading articles that indicates that the policy is that you know we will make them autonomous and they will be able to do certain things. But it raises a whole host of issues, I think, that uh, legal issues that we haven't really
1: grappled with yet. Right. Well, so that's interesting. So there is a um, there was a DoD directive from maybe two years ago on autonomous yeah. weapons that basically said um, we are for, for now going to do man in the loop or man on the loop yeah. and that we basically won't be doing fully autonomous except for cyber um, but if you read through the lines i do think there are a couple of, of, kind of convoluted outs to that policy having to do with how high an approval waiver you get and so on to develop autonomous weapons but i think the general u.s. posture at this point is that we're not at a point at which we're going to be producing and using fully autonomous weapons. Um, As you may know, there's a debate in the international community about this with a number of groups pushing for a ban on fully autonomous weapon systems. Um, More trips to Geneva. More trips to (laughs) Geneva. Are you on the team? (laughs) (laughs) Lots of uh, chocolate and fondue for you. But it's, I, I don't know where it, where it will go, but I imagine you have states like the U.S. and U.K. and Russia and China saying, actually, you know, we don't really know where this is going to go. It's premature to have this conversation. Things are slowly sort of becoming more and more auto- uh, autonomousized, automatic, whatever. Uh, um, already the, there's not going to be one single point at which you have non-autonomous to autonomous so um, I was going to end my lecture with that as sort of, that's a lecture for another day, but I think that's absolutely right that this um, raises questions about autonomy. Um, but I, I just imagine in showing the, the, most, the last video that um, we will probably live in a world pretty soon where everybody's got their own personal micro drones. And I mean, do any of you own drones, personal drones? My husband has a couple on our mantelpiece. <laughs> uh, I don't fly him here, but, um, you know, I it, it does, I, I wonder if it will eventually change the whole notion of armed conflict because people can do so much solo, that there's no need for an organized armed group to conduct basically the level of violence that we now think of as armed conflict, Um then again, we might, be in a, we might then go back to a world in which states can use law enforcement because they're really only fighting one individual at a time. Okay, how about uh, sort of with, with the bigger kinds of drones? There's widespread acquisition and use already happening. So 86 states already have some kind of drone capability. That includes both armed and unarmed drones. 19 states or so have armed drones. Uh, Many – that includes China, South Africa. um, Many more are developing them. Russia, Turkey, India, Italy, Spain want to develop their own uh, endogenous armed drones. Israel and China are active uh, exporters, and countries like Saudi are buying them. And seven states to date have used armed drones in combat, right? So that's the U.S., the U.K., um, Israel, Pakistan, Iran – and recently, in uh, Iraq and also Nigeria has used them against Boko Haram recently. And two non-state actors we know have had some form of drone, Hezbollah and Hamas. Uh, some of these might be relatively small sort of cameras duct taped to them, but I think Hezbollah's was reasonably serious and uh, Israel shot it down. But I think this all goes back to my point about why the U.S. government has been somewhat focused on the precedent that it's setting that won't necessarily affect what Hezbollah and Hamas do, but it might affect what, the way in which other states conduct themselves. Okay, so finally I just wanna conclude with a question about kind of the work of law here. What kind of work will international or domestic regulation do? I think it's more likely that we're gonna see more action on the domestic front where, States themselves start to figure out within their own territory this is generally with regard to unarmed drones uh, what, uh, what is appropriate and then then there will be a question about whether and how international laws should deal with drones but you need to decide what you're trying to regulate right? are you trying to regulate armed drones the use of armed drones spy drones, micro drones drone parts how they're used most people would say, look, there are already rules about how to use drones. They're, it, as a weapons platform, they're no different from anything else. The laws of war regulate how you use them. But I also think there is no, going to be no appetite for a ban. We're too far in with this, and it's providing sort of too many benefits for um, most states that I mentioned in the acquisition world to, um, to agree to that. So I think we're going to see technology advancing faster than law here, Um, and there are probably innumerable legal questions that will come up that um, you guys, as young lawyers, will have to face in your in your career. Um, I do think there might be some action on the international plane with regard to autonomy, but as I said, I think that's that's another lecture. With that, uh, any questions? Okay, I'll wrap up. Thank you, guys, very much.